This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapole, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. It's a great time for repertory cinema in New York, and in another era, that might mean you'd pick up The Village Voice and read all about it. The Voice was shut down last month, which is its own whole story. But even when it was around, there was so much going on at repertory theaters that a lot of great movies and programming wasn't getting the spotlight it deserved. So at Film Comment, we'll be trying to fill in that void a bit, with a regular chat about what we're watching in theaters. And that'll include both repertory and new releases. This is a bit of a passion project for me, since it's how a lot of us spend our time anyway, going to the movies and talking about what we want to see or what we've seen or what's coming up. But on a fundamental level, it's also just part of supporting our cultural institutions. Anyway, for our first episode, I brought together two folks from one of New York's repertory mainstays, the website ScreenSlate. Here's our conversation, which is followed by a talk about new releases with Sheila O'Malley and Nick Pinkerton. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast uh, in, in what is a hopefully a recurring series uh, that we're launching. As you may have heard, uh, The Village Voice is no longer, and it was a great source, as, as many people know, of news about what's showing in repertory programming in the city. And so I thought, you know, Film Comment could sort of fill a bit of a void uh, that's out there in... Uh, not entirely a void, and, and you'll see that I, I brought people to prove that. And just talk about what's coming up, what's come in the past. But I'm, I'm very pleased to be joined by, who better to be joined by than... This is John Derringer, the founder of ScreenSlate. And I'm Nellie Killian, a board member at ScreenSlate, and um, a curator and contributing editor to Film Comment. So... ScreenSlate, as, as many of our listeners probably already know, is the place most of us compulsively check when we're trying to figure out what to do on any given day or night, weekday or, or weekend. So, it, you know, it's kind of the logical way to start this series is the people who know everything that's going on right now in New York Repertory. And basically, we're going to talk about what's what we've seen, uh, what we want to see, what we missed and are regretful and tearful about missing and probably can never see again. I, I think a lot of the general dialogue around going to rep houses is, is, is actually about what you haven't seen for some reason and what you really, really want to see um, and, and what is rare. But um, I mean, I think one thing that we've all seen and there's always so much to choose from at any given time. So I hope no one's offended that we leave someone off of this particular podcast. We'll get to all rep houses in the end, I'm sure. But one series is at the Quad Cinema, uh, which is showing a bunch of films by Margareta von Trotta, I think tied to a documentary she made about Ingmar Bergman, who was a kind of a primary influence uh, for her. The documentary is Searching for Ingmar Bergman. And I actually talked to her about it in, in Cannes, and she has like total recall for all sorts of scenes from Bergman that clearly have become like primal scenes for her in, in, in thinking about different ways of, of staging film. 
So uh, I guess we've each seen a few. Uh, Nellie, re refresh my memory. Which ones did you see? I've seen The Lost Honor of Katerina Bloom and The Secret Awakening of Krista Kleggs, uh, which it's actually interesting. Um, I'd sort of forgotten what prompted this series and that it is this documentary about Bergman because, um, I mean, one thing that's incredibly striking in these two films is the lead performances by the actresses. And of course, Von Trada is an actress herself. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that she has this sort of fondness for someone who's so known as a, you know, incredible director of, of women. And, and I mean, it's just also interesting in her, in her history that when she did kind of shift from becoming an actress primarily to being a director primarily and having more control over, over the, the product in a way, the, the one I saw was Rosa Luxemburg, which, uh, was is about a uh, a socialist, uh, uh, bona fide socialist, in in, in uh, actually I think from Poland, but working in Germany for the greater good of the socialist cause, and it's it's really kind of old school. Like we're following someone for twenty thirty years through their struggles. Rosa Luxemburg is played by Barbara Sokova, and it actually reminded me a bit of a newer film from the past few months, Peterloo. Uh, the Mike Lee film, just because it's a film, Rosa Luxemburg is a film that just unabashedly has like a ton of political speeches and just people just getting up on some platform and addressing, you know, the party uh, and putting forth some position. And that was what a lot of Peterloo kind of was. Uh, and I think it got knocked for it a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, that's kind of was the hard work of like political organizing. And I mean, it still is to a certain extent, just going around and personally convincing bunches of people at a time or making your case to bunches of people at a time. And, you know, maybe not the favorite film of, of, of hers that I've seen, but still kind of inspiring in that regard. Also similar to Peter Liu, Peter Liu being the, the Mike Lee film about uh, the, the, um, massacre in Manchester uh, of, of voting rights, of a voting rights protesters. And uh, this movie ends kind of abruptly and violently and, you know, very sadly, just as Peter Liu does. Not to spoil Peter Liu, but on the other hand, it's it's in the history books, so I, I can't really spoil what was already written as, as this one was. Anyway. Vontrada was someone who was sort of a blind spot for me, and I, uh, I mean sort of talking maybe more broadly about repertory film. Like I, I didn't go to film school or anything like that. So I've sort of like allowed whatever uh, New York film repertory series to be like my guide through film history. And uh, as a result, I'm kind of getting around to Von Trotta right now, um, which, you know, she's someone I definitely could have been seeking out. But now that this opportunity has presented itself, I was sort of surprised that both of the ones I saw are kind of like, um, like political pot boilers. Katerina Bloom is like sort of very taut, like uh, sort of political thriller about this woman who has a one night stand with a man who it turns out was a terrorist. And then she becomes the sort of center of um, this sort of nationwide controversy and her life is sort of dissected. And uh, uh, she's under like incredible scrutiny by the press and sort of hounded and it's, you know, sort of about this like fervor and fear around uh, terrorism sort of in the wake of Bader Meinhof and things like that. And the other one I saw, uh, Krista Kleggs is almost like, it's it's like a, a cross between like Mission Impossible and um, Riddles of the Sphinx. 
<laughs> it's like uh, a wo- uh, wo- like a woman um, is sort of pushed to uh, rob a bank in order to continue funding her like free daycare center. Uh, and again, it you know it there's this heist element, but of course it's not like it's not exactly like a Mission Impossible. I mean, the heist is part of it, but it really becomes more about this fallout of then, you know, the daycare doesn't want the money because it's like dirty money. But like sort of it's more about um, the fact that she was pushed to this and following this woman and so sensitively sort of, you know, an incredible performance. And this woman um, like really kind of like draws you into the psychology of um, sort of her politics and her, you know, choices, I guess. I actually totally forgot I'd seen that before until you mentioned um, Mission Impossible meets Riddles of the Sphinx. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I rem- like totally recall that now that you mentioned it. Um, the first one that came to my mind is uh, making an impression on me was the German Sisters, um, which I think is showing at the quad under the title um, uh, Marianne and Juliana. And that's also really steeped in radical politics and the the Bader Meinhof gang. And um, that one is about two sisters, uh, one of whom is Barbara Sukowa, and what I think is her first collaboration with Von Trada, which is you know spans to basically present day. So it's about her and her sister, and uh, so she plays a terrorist who's incarcerated. And her sister is a journalist, and there's this tension between, um, you know, I I guess a lot of things that we're talking about now, like sort of uh, direct observation and factual reporting uh, versus uh, direct action, uh, potentially illegal or even uh, dangerous direct action. And yeah, I mean, it's a a really incredible film. And yeah. Yeah. The thing that sometimes comes up for me with some of these movies, I mean, these are like the, these are like, I I did encounter them first, not not in, like in a film class, I remember, I, I, you know, they're kind of like a staple of, of like, okay, I need, I need an entry from like, for feminist filmmaking or for political filmmaking in in the seventies. And then you'd, you, you know, grab sisters off the shelf or something or, um, so, but so it was always kind of satisfying that Katarina Bloom was like a, criterion collection disc i always thought that like oh it's good that you know <laughs> one of those they're, they're not just like in some chunky video cassette in like the bobst library it, it's funny because actually this this semester and last semester whatever this calendar year i've been teaching and as a result like a lot of my viewing each week has been organized around what i'm showing to the students and i also get this sense from them of what they're seeing in class which is really funny. Like, I mean, I'm showing them, I think stuff that might be a little bit more out there, but then it's like, I showed them a Ryan Trickhart short last week. And then I asked them, one of them raised their hand was, they were like, is this the guy who made a family finds entertainment? And I was like, yes. And they were like, we saw that in our film fundamentals class. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, so what was the context? Like, why were you watching that in film fundamentals? Like what were you, you know, supposed to take from it or whatever. And they were like, it was an example of what an experimental film is. And I was just like, 
oh, so you like, I have no idea what you saw. <laughs> and they were just like, it was an example of experimental filmmaking. And I was like, great, cool. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like the, you know, when you're, you know, when you have those survey courses and, and it's, you're just shown, you know, something by Man Ray from the 20s. And that's just, well, that's 20s in France. So we'll just move on. Um, that's really funny. It's also what's so great about living in New York where you can go and see these works contextualized. Because I feel like so many people get a, an entry point either, uh, I mean, even if you sort of are watching things on TCM or you're um, seeing things as they come out, like you might not like get the opportunity that you get in New York where there's always these comprehensive retrospectives going on, whether of a individual filmmaker or a movement or a thematic thing that I think actually helps. Again, like, you know, obviously there's college courses that do like sort of dig deeper on specific filmmakers, but most people end up in a survey course. And <laughs> uh, to actually be able to, you know, see all the Von Tradas and be like, so what was she up to? Instead of just like feminist. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And and then like another great thing is that you can fill in the gaps. We, we were talking just before we start recording about how we're each of us kind of trying to fill in various gaps we have. And, and you know, Orson Welles now is, has been a good opportunity for a lot of people uh, with The Other Side of the Wind, you know, finally coming out uh, to, to catch up with other films of his. Uh, IFC Center is, is showing a bunch of these. And now I'm forgetting, someone was talking about seeing Mr. Arcadon. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, that was a Wells that I just hadn't seen. And I think in part because I just always been like, which version of this should I watch? And then I just ch watched something else. And then, <laughs> and so then I went and saw it at um, IFC Center. And of course, it's, you know, great. Like, it's absolutely, like, fantastic. And I mean, I feel like I have that experience often with, uh, you'll see in Repertory, there's a movie by, like, a director you love that has, like, a, I mean, not that Wells has a huge filmography, but, like, there's a lot of, there, you have gaps or whatever. I feel like I had a similar experience with Mr. Arcadden, I did with uh, Tiger Shark, the uh, John Ford movie played at Metrograph not too long ago. And it's just like you walk out of either of these movies and you're like, every frame is beautiful and perfect. And like, I like want to spend all of my time like in these sort of, you know, in the hands of these like masters. Um, and I, I mean, I like to see a lot of different types of movies, but like definitely Mr. Arcadden, there was like some scenes in it where it was just like, it's insane. I waited so long to watch this movie, like for this shot of this party. Yeah. <laughs> There's no beating the big screen there. I've said it. Um, that's actually, I mean, I might as well mention that's actually why we named our review section in, in, in Filmcom, the big, the big screen as opposed to reviews. Um, so yes, we are biased, but lest you think that all we've done is, is seen various canonical filmmakers of one stripe or another, you know, we, we've also done some viewing uh, on, on, the, on the outskirts of respectability. And that's because they're also terrific programmers working uh, with, with films that, you know, maybe haven't received the same attention. Uh, and John, I understand that you've been seeing a few of these recently. Uh, that is correct. Um, so there's a series uh, coming up, uh, actually, I think it just started a few days ago at Alamo Draft House, programmed by their in-house programmer, Christina Cacioppo, called Homemade Action, which is a really fascinating conceit because it's not a genre we typically associate with uh, independent, or at least, you know, truly low budget, independent kinds of productions. And so 
looking at these films, the spectrum kind of ranges from a film that was made for, I think, $96 in someone's apartment, uh, which is the uh, Rambo movie. Oh, yeah, Flooding with the Love for the Kid. To, I think, on the higher end of the spectrum would probably be Miami Connection, which is clearly not a film made by um, experienced filmmakers and yet seems to have, you know, money behind it. There's definitely production value. Um, Also within that span, I think we see things from sort of, uh, I guess what we could affectionately call sort of vernacular uh, backstreet action films to things that almost um, approach something more along the lines that you would see in um, video art, like whether it's direct camera performance or in the case of one movie in the series that was a total revelation for me, which is called Blonde Death. Uh, And that was produced uh, under the auspices of a media art center in Los Angeles called Easy TV. And the screenplay for it is incredible. I mean, it's, it's, I had heard it was this shot on video action movie and that it was really kitschy. And um, having seen a lot of that thing, you know, they, they kind of become difficult to differentiate from each other. It's like one blurry standard definition uh, stew. But this really stood out to me for its screenplay. And uh, the writer, James Robert Baker, uh, seems to have been one of those people who uh, was like an award-winning screenwriter uh, as a student, but never really had success having his films produced. And it's not difficult to understand why, because they are really transgressive and kitschy, and um, they they pull in a lot of cultural clutter, like sort of doomsday cults and, uh, I don't know, people who are addicted to diet pills and poison tang and Christian missionaries in Disneyland. But he's really great at crafting these really sympathetic, interesting, and highly identifiable characters and really tying the satire to them in an um, organic way. And then, of course, it's really it's structured very well. And um, he also managed to capture these incredible performances by first-time actors, um, I think kind of only-time actors. And... You know, I haven't even really talked about what the movie's about, but I would basically describe it as like um, like a sort of angry gay anarchist take on Badlands, like from the 1980s. Uh, so it has this sort of, yeah, this sort of lyrical, innocent voiceover. And it's about this girl who moves with her right-wing Christian family to um, the Orange County. And... Um, So basically, they're going out to do missionary work, and she discovers this plot that her stepmother had to kill her father with poison tang, to inherit his money, to start a new church. And then in the meantime, there's this hunky home invader who shows up, (laughs) and the two of them fall in love with each other. Uh, And so they have this plan to rob Disneyland, um, to basically start a new life together. But then uh, another home invader shows up, which just happens to be... um, the sort of new lovers prison bunkmate. And so they basically form a menage a trois relationship. Um, And um, (laughs) I feel like I haven't even covered some of the more like out there aspects of this film. But yeah, I mean, it's it's, to me, this is like the kind of thing that easily um, could have been like a larger budget film. Like if, 
you know, maybe it had the same breaks as someone like uh, John Waters or Todd Haynes. I mean, it has the vibe of like, um, you know, Pink Flamingos or Superstar. And, you know, for better or worse, it seems like someone who's fairly uncompromising and didn't really um, rein it in. So, yeah, it's one of many gems within the series. I feel like a number of the films in that uh, homemade action series are things that I saw at Anthology first. Like, I, they did the... Uh, definitely the flooding with love for the kid. I believe they did a run of yeah. years ago. And um, they also... I'm not sure if it's in there, but the... Uh, the sort of remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark that takes place over like that, like uh, some kids made over the course of like 12 years of like their childhood. But it is like you watch, I mean, I think because I've encountered a lot of these movies at anthology, which is such a sort of like temple to the avant-garde. I really like, they're just completely on a continuum for me with like Kuchar and like the Yanomoto's, which like, you know, just continues absolutely, you know, like directly into sort of the what you were saying, the sort of like weirder end of American independent filmmaking. No, I remember the is, the Raiders movie is not part of that I don't group. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just remember that being actually like a huge sellout crowd, like around the block at Anthology. Um, and Flooding with Love for the Kid, I remember seeing, I think I wrote, wrote a review of it. Um, and yeah, it just kind of turns the like the Rambo screenplay into like black box poetry or something. It's kind of it's kind of crazy, and it's also kind of like just the thrill of showmanship, just like one guy kind of pulling off these different roles and these scenes and finding these resourceful ways um, of of doing them. And I guess when that movie was made, in my mind, it somehow I guess because it was a one-man show he did it, it it also kind of fits in with a certain strand of like off off broadway work in, in a weird way um as as well i wonder if this is a point just because you know bringing up anthology and and how these these kind of d you know diy action films end up becoming almost experimental if this is a way we can just mention uh, a couple of other series that we aspire to see but have not seen well I mean, speaking specifically of anthology, I um, definitely am curious about this F.J. Osang series in part. (laughs) There's a movie called, I believe, Escape from Bitch Island that just, if you're going to name your movie that, um, you really have to, uh, you really have to stick the landing. (laughs) But I've heard it's quite interesting and um, definitely hoping to see that when it plays for a second time. Um, And there's also sort of in the, again, sort of getting into this sort of world of like a LA media center, uh, (laughs) sculpture center has this show that I've been meaning to see for like over a month called, um, before projection, uh, video sculpture. That's all these sort of, um, video sculptures from, uh, I believe mostly like the seventies that is supposed to be a great show. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting up there, uh, hopefully within the next week or two, I think it's open until December something. Yeah, so the the Bruce Nauman exhibition is at MoMA and MoMA PS1, and it's completely taken over PS1, uh, which I think has rarely been done. I know there was a Mike Kelly show a few years ago, uh, but then it also has, uh, oh, exactly, yeah, the Carly Schneemann show um, from a year or two ago. Um, and then there's also uh, like an entire floor at MoMA, the main, main MoMA 
Yeah, I mean, Bruce Nauman is, is you know, one of the um, major conceptual artists and particularly um, in the sphere of media and performance. And so it's a very media rich show. Um, and, um, you know, it ranges from everything from his, you know, early pieces like um, dance around the perimeter of a square to um, actually at PS1, there's this creepy clown room. And it's literally a room with, uh, I can't remember if there are one or two projections of just uh, like a angry, screaming, crying clown on the floor, just yelling no. Uh, <laughs> and then there are monitors stacked that also have a angry, <laughs> screaming, crying clown. Um, and um, actually one of the, one of the interesting uh, aspects of the PS1 show as well is um, he revisited some of his... Um, earlier studio uh, video and film performance pieces. And um, there's this 3D one where basically he bisects his body, um, so basically moving forwards and backwards at the same time, split through the middle of the frame. And um, you know the, you have to wear glasses to watch it. And uh, it's pretty cool. Sort of the flip side of things that we're looking forward to seeing, things that I'm sort of sad I missed. I saw a picture on like Instagram on Halloween of this Tony Orsler exhibit that was on the East River. He had some sort of projection going on the East River, and it looked like it might be like a Pepper's ghost or something, which um, he had something at MoMA a year or two ago that was a feature length film that was uh, took place in a sort of Pepper's ghost uh, setup, which is like a really. Uh, it's a like mode of projection that's like used in like haunted houses a lot, but it was also used by like mediums and sort of like occult practitioners in the late 19th century to create this kind of like ghost projection. Um, I believe the way it works is that it's like two images that are projected on like glass with like smoke in between or something. It's like some, whatever. I forget exactly how it works, but whenever I see them, they're like really creepy and like he had like a whole sort of um occult feature film in uh that was um installed in this sort of pepper's ghost setup and it kind of looked like he had a pepper's ghost halloween thing on the east river for the entire month of october and i find out about it on instagram on uh on halloween day <laughs> yeah that's kind of the story of of, of rep going <laughs> I mean, I also just want to talk about any any kind of comfort food watching we've done as well at places or, or, or can look forward to. And and my little little shout out is for Porco Rosso, uh, which is a Miyazaki film that probably maybe a lot of people have already seen, uh, but it's showing at my first film fest uh, here at the Film Society. And I just have always liked this movie because I love whoever thought, you know, that pigs could fly and be a World War One flying ace. And just I love how the movie just kind of takes this reality for granted. Um, I, I, I kind of want to live in that that kind of reality. Um, so that's that's one thing that's also fun to, to look forward to. And someone was talking about domestic labor series, which is at BAM, which I'm I, I saw one of our contributors, Sierra Pettengill, was doing a, an introduction for. Is there, is there anything in there that, that we are looking forward to as well? Yeah, I think in that series, uh, Wu Tsang's Wildness is one of the kind of must-see videos. Um, and that's a feature-length um, video about uh, the sort of life and death of uh, a space called the Silver Platter in Los Angeles. 
which was an uh, important space for uh, queer, uh, Latino, Latino um, uh, performers. And so, yeah, definitely check that out. I'm really looking forward to this screening of Ghost of Mars that's going to be at Metrograph next week. Um, I've seen almost, uh, we did, when I worked at BAM, we did a huge Carpenter series. Um, and I've seen at this point, like almost everything as a result of that. But this movie, I actually only saw once on a mega bus ride to Philadelphia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. And it's also, uh, uh, Scott Hamra is going to be introducing it to sort of celebrate the, his book, which he's one of my favorite film critics. So excited to hear what he has to say about the movie and i'm actually looking at a still of it right now and it really looks dope <laughs> um i think that's probably a very good note to, to end on on ghosts of mars um so yeah we will be doing this regularly uh as you can see i you know i think it's just a great way to talk about what's out there and what's coming up so i want to thank my guests very very much uh nelly and john this podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves Wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. Wildlife opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. And welcome back to the second half of our program. Uh, now we're going to talk with, uh, we're going to talk about uh, new releases or new theatrical releases or relatively new releases, uh, films that have come out in the past week or two or three, uh, maybe a couple that are coming out uh, next week. And for this segment, I, I'm very pleased to be joined by a couple of uh, uh, two new guests um, who are Sheila O'Malley and Nick Pinkerton. Um, so where you know this is this is not something that we've really done much of before we've done a lot of written reviews and and we've done kind of you know um overviews of filmmakers um but i thought it'd be nice to have just a good old-fashioned chat people don't read that crapola anymore they don't no as we know everything is now audio or video and accordingly we are i've, I've just spent an hour destroying our printing presses with a, with a sledgehammer uh, and just came right here and just pick right up. But let's see, how about, what's one film that I think we've all seen is Burning, uh, which has had a, you know, really, it's very comparatively small, you know, release, but has been really popular. And of course, here we had Stephen Young came here for the screenings here, which is really special for us at the Film Society. So, I mean, what, what did we think of that? I mean, you know what I thought, because it's it's on the cover of the magazine. That's kind of my, my tell. But yeah. Yeah, I had to um, review it for... Uh, RogerEbert.com and um, gave it four stars. I had read a couple of the pieces in in Film Comment and I hadn't seen it at that point. So I was sort of primed for it. And I, f I felt it, I was completely sucked into it. I mean, I was completely, you know, I had heard people on Twitter saying, oh, it's, I make an exception and this one is for, you know, movies all should be shorter. This one is very, I was like, I didn't feel long to me at all. It felt as long as it needed to be to tell the story that he wanted to tell. I thought it was great. And actually we should probably uh, recap the story a little just in case people haven't seen it. Uh, if you want to take a stab. <laughs> um, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, 
the yeah okay so there's a a young guy who meets up with his who kind of has a chance encounter with someone he grew up with they hook up he gets um she asks him to take care of his cat her cat while she's in africa he's completely he's a he loves her. He's fallen in love with her. And she returns from Africa with a mysterious smiling person named Ben. And they're clearly now an item. And I'm describing the plot. Um, I yeah. mean, that, I struggled that in, with my review is it's really, it is about these things, but it's really not, it's how it's about it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I kind of <laughs> everyone has secrets. Everyone is slightly mysterious. You you wonder who's on the level, who might not be on the level. Um, there's a there's a kind of a, a mood, uneasy mood in it. I found it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Really, I I just never really knew what was going to be around the corner and where that mood would take us. It was like, a, it was sort of a mood just of lying in wait for you in some way and you don't really know what. And and the fact that the, um, I mean, the, the young guy is, is, is kind of seems hapless, but then slowly these, these kind of, I don't know, kind of darker energies come forth to him that seem to come out of frustration, but don't seem limited to that. Um, and also that's not all of who he is. Um, well, because he's responsible too. I mean, yeah, he's going, exactly. he's going to like yeah. take care of the farm. He like does everything he's supposed to do. Yeah. He travels back and forth to take care of this cat. Um, but he's sort of sucked into this, I don't know what you, he, the, the, the line where he says there are so many Gatsby's in Korea. Um, speaking of this Ben who is, has this really palatial apartment and no visible means of income yeah. and the snotty friends who really are, I mean, just the way those scenes were filmed with the way these people looked at her, you know, her, you know, his yeah. friend with this kind of mockery and uncomfortable, um, they're not good people. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's very clear. There's no, they're not good people. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones who are rising to the top of society. It's I'm making it sound more didactic, I think, than no, it that, is. And that's the crazy thing, yeah. And, and and especially with with the, I mean, the ending that it kind of wends towards. I think the ending, which I I will I will just say I don't want to reveal because I think it's actually good not to reveal. Oh, for sure. That, that one, but I think people have kind of appropriated it in a little bit to to make the film something it's not or not only uh, about. Um, because there's there's definitely a, a yeah a lot about class and, and a lot about some sort of weird uh, yeah <laughs> global, you know sort of e elite in the society uh, that's that's detached emotionally that Stephen Young's character is kind of this this you know yawning poster boy for abyss of uh, yeah, yeah uh, abyss of humanity <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, now Nick this this I I happen to know that you may not be <laughs> a fan a little birdie. The initials RS told me. I mean, I'll say tapping in as the resident burning agnostic listening to you guys chat. I don't, on the face of it, disagree with anything that you're saying. It's a movie that while watching, I certainly am aware of its craft, its intelligence, the extreme care with which it maintains a studied ambivalence throughout even up to and including uh, the 
very tricky combination of subjective and objective camera work. At one and the same time, I don't have much of a feeling for the movie at all. At one and the same time, I think Burning belongs to this like category of film that never makes a major misstep, but that doesn't, to my mind, make it great. I just don't have much of a feeling for it other than thinking, well, that's a thing well achieved that I'll probably never think about again for the rest <laughs> of my life. And I, I'm aware that this is at least partially like a temperamental thing, but it just did not, again, no pun intended, cut to the quick for me. Yeah, well, um, I'm curious when you, when you say temperamental, I'm curious about that. It, it's it, does that mean it's sort of coming? It's coming from a certain approach that you kind of recognize, and you're just like, I'm not really into. I that, mean, or... I would say that I have this with a lot of the like so-called Berlin School films as well. As you're ramping up for a big uh, Christian Petzold fest, <laughs> like. Right. They just don't push my buttons, even though certainly I recognize like this is well made and there's an enormous amount of intelligence behind this. And I can see that, you know, conscientious uh, aesthetic decisions are being made throughout, <laughs> but I don't fucking care. Like, <laughs> it's just not a it's not a category of like drum tight well-made filmmaking that ultimately appeals to me all that terribly much hmm. um so that's i think what i mean by yeah. like a temperamental <laughs> thing well, well thank you for clarifying uh yeah i mean i i, would, I mean would, I, I, yeah. it's it's so richly sewn with little novelistic details of the <laughs> light from you know the whatever tower uh, reflecting into the closet during the clumsy love making and it tickles the zeitgeist ever so lightly, um, <laughs> but something on me, uh, something in the like base of my spine, just fails to really respond to it, other than to you know give good marks throughout. I mean, it, it you know it's it's I I the, the pet sold movies. I mean, there's just there's often I, which I love, but there's in it like a a stringency to them that I don't feel in this in this film as much um at the same time this is a film that I was nervous to see like a second time I mean um in the sense that I wasn't sh I, I felt there was some sort of magic it was working um and you know I saw it at, at, at Cannes which means like maybe I slept through the bad part um but then I saw it again and it was almost like a relief to to feel that it it, it was um I was still connecting with it, um, and yeah, the 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 craft I, I was was uh, kind of intimately bound up uh, with that. Just especially the, the timing of how individual scenes would would, would unfold. It, it would it would it uh, I don't know, but which is interesting because then you can start talking about what rhythms one is susceptible to or or not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think were I to sort of go through like tallying everything about the movie performance-wise, extraordinary, <laughs> uh, cinematographically, yeah, there's like absolutely a um, active and uh, an active and searching intelligence going on behind every choice, and yet, like that cumulative uh, yeah. record of, you know unimpeachable goodness does not <laughs> total up to something that I yeah. feel passionately involved with. Yeah. 
Sheila, how do you, how do you react? To well, this? I mean, all I can say is that my interests, it, I'm, I'm so interested in people like Ben. Um, and Incels. Oh no, sorry. Hmm? Ben is the Stephen Yoon. Yes. Character. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. The, yes, the, um, wait, what did you say? <laughs> I said incels, thinking that you were oh my referring to our, I no. guess, identification no. character. No, um, the other kind of guy. It's a totally different sociopolitical <laughs> landscape. I don't know if we can kind of graft that on here. And I don't want them. I don't want to talk about them at all. But um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and there's something. There's something that, like, the second he arrived, I felt. Um, for me, if you didn't feel it, it was like, oh, it's going to be about that kind of person. I get excited about what I call the blankness, the characters who are blank, the Alan Delon school of acting, which is my favorite. It's my favorite. It's very difficult to do. You kind of have to just have a feel for it. Um, and it and what it has to say or what it doesn't say, because um, it doesn't say much. People, You know, if you... If you scratch that, there's not a lot of depth there. And that's what's so interesting. That's what's so fascinating. He is who he is. He's, he's not hiding. He, he can, you know, confesses what he's going to do and right. is kind of... Um, so that, that type of character is often in less sort of sensitive or curious hands turned into like the cool, um, super intelligent serial killer type, you know, the guy, you know, um, which is a cliche and, uh, and doesn't really tell us anything about anything. So I couldn't, that's why it didn't feel too long to me. That's why it didn't, I, cause I'm fascinated by what people like that, the damage they do, what they do or don't represent. It's almost like they're a force of nature. Hmm. They exist anyway. Yeah. So I was excited by that aspect of it. Yeah. I was uh, getting deep into the rabbit hole of like Reddit threads oh, no. uh, relating to burning because it's interesting oh. that it seem because it has this quality that appeals to I think the sort of code breaking community of film watchers who are always like right. oh yeah uh, yes because it is so open ended and because it is such a carefully balanced tightrope act right down to the sort of tenor of the performances yeah there's i mean i won't say it's mushrooming exactly <laughs> but it has sort of hopped over to this i was unaware of that uh yes. you know community of film watchers who have mm. already like created some fairly wackadoo theories <laughs> oh they're fan theories yeah like yeah. you know ben is this sort of benevolent wealthy guy who's helping young working class women to make themselves over and that oh. yeah so if you guys have a few hours wow. on your hand wow. <laughs> well i can only imagine how the the, the dmz with north korea figures into to, to mm. this uh interpretation well let's uh maybe well let's 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 jump to to another film this is actually something that's been out for a while but but sheila you were just saying that kind of i think a lot of people uh discovered it a little bit afterwards private life which is a netflix uh film so uh it had a maybe more muted release comparatively but now people are watching it and it would play it oh and it played uh, in the new york film festival. new york film festivals mm -hmm. and it got yeah. you know I mean, yeah. there was quite a bit of talk about it, especially yeah. um, to people who love Jenkins, have loved Jenkins' work and yeah. have been waiting, you know, 
eight years or whatever. Um, so, so I reviewed it for you all and then it launched on Netflix. So it was sort of this staggered, people were talking about it, but mm-hmm. no one had seen it. Everyone yeah. was saying, I'm excited to see it because of Tamara Jenkins. And I just have seen it twice now. So I saw it, screened it and then just watched it again. I was like, well, let me go, let me go watch it again. And I, um, I just, I really love it. I love, I love her work, first of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I said what I needed to say kind of in the piece that I wrote for you, you know, her sort of obsession is very personal with sort of bodies and how bodies act in the world and how they misbehave, you know, like breasts yeah. grow big and that's a know, good word for it. <laughs> and the slums of Beverly Hills, like the whole movies about boobs, you know, and how good they are, but how you don't want them. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm simplifying, but, um, and this, uh, just on a, Another note, it gives Katherine Hahn sort of center stage, which is fantastic. Mm. You know, I've loved her for a long time and she is she is fantastic in this in this role. It's like a leading lady, like great actress performance, I think, um, in the best sense of the word. It's about a couple whose entire relationship has been it's like invasion of the body snatchers. Like their relationship has been co-opted by trying to have a baby. And, you know, it starts in the middle. Well, a couple years in, it looks like by the time, you know, we meet up with them and they're already exhausted and kind of veterans of this process. And their friends are losing patience and sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> um, people say, you know, I, I have friends who have been in this situation. Anyway, it's even just saying, have you ever thought about adoption is a knife in the heart. It's because it is talking about the failure of something that you thought you would be able to do. And the movie really, really gets that. And it's one of the reasons why it's been eight years to in between movies for her is this is like coming from mm. a personal this is not, you know, you can't, don't do this in your spare time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, I mean, it's, um, I, 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 it's actually, I, I think I saw this at Sundance where I think it was the opening film. And as I recall, it didn't get like a rapturous welcome there. And then there was some talk that maybe it was going to be trimmed somewhat. I'm, I'm not sure it actually was. It's slightly older. long. It's, 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 it's slightly long. Slightly long. Yeah. But I mean, I, I it's, it's, uh, I, 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 I think I kept on getting tuned into like the, you know, aging bohemian New York aspect. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, so real. Which, <laughs> yeah, which is, um, you know, I, I like the idea that they're, they're the couple are, are, are people that they're, the, 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 the girl who comes visit with them. I still don't understand. It's just like a family friend's <laughs> daughter, basically. It's a brother-in-law, brother- step-niece. Step step-niece, that's it, that's it. I did a little family tree to try to understand what, <laughs> what the is. relationship was. Yeah. But yes. Which is also kind of nice because I like that idea of, I mean, the, the, those kind of like relationships and closenesses that yeah. you have where, yeah. yeah, you couldn't really trace it if you had to, but. But they sort of took her under their wing yeah. and then asked her, you know, this younger woman, could you donate an egg into our, you know, and yeah. that is, it explodes. But, um, yeah. but I, you know, it's, um, Another thing, I think I said this in the review, is that this is not a topic that people want to talk about mm-hmm. in general. This is not a topic that is kind of, it's like old age in movies, you know, movies about people growing older, which is changing. There's been quite a few good ones, but movies that like deal with infertility in a human way, in a 
Yeah. You know, you can count them. It's not a topic that people really want to look at. Yeah. And the anger and how the anger of like, oh, you know, someone saying, oh my God, I got pregnant on my, on my honeymoon, you know, and how, right. I, just how society is, um, it's this unspoken, you either belong to the club or you don't. And if you don't, you have to rethink your whole, and people who aren't in on that track, who don't get it, think the people who are trying to have a baby and going through all of this have lost their minds. Right. Like what is the, just adopt or, you know. Right, right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think it really um, shows that in a humorous way. You really can see how challenging it would be to be friends with either of them. Right, yeah. You know. And and then they're also kind of a bit, I don't know, again, in, in keeping with kind of the old older New York aspect of it, sort of prickly older New York New Yorkers, you know, with well-developed like cynicism and skepticism about things. And, and that's kind of something else that's interesting is that I'm sure they can hardly believe or, uh, <laughs> that they were in this <laughs> situation right. as well. Right. And, and then actively trying to pursue something that they probably were like, you know, constantly like inveigling against for, for like forever. years, forever exactly. until this point. When he, when he finally says something like some, one of their IVF treatments doesn't take. And he says, you know what? I'm relieved. You know, I'd like to have sex again, yeah. you know, and she has this huge reaction. Like, yeah. I'd like to actually just have a relationship yeah. again. Um, I don't know. I, I loved it because it was personal, funny, focused on these sort of great performances. Molly Shannon yeah. is incredible. Um, John Carroll Lynch, I think, was the... Yes, I was like John Carroll Lynch. Husband, yeah. father, whatever. Anyway, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I, know, I mean, I, I thought the, the way it was photographed was was pretty interesting at times a lot of times they had i think there's like this one like waiting room shot which like could have been like a roy anderson like could have tab tableau right um and then i don't know if it was the opening shot but they have this kind of faux contempt opening shot basically do you remember where she's good it's like she's getting oh, yeah. a shot she's getting shot <laughs> but you don't know she's gonna get a shot that's right you hear yeah you just kind of see see her kind of prone figure right. there and then you're right. like what's gonna go what's going on and then it's just to give them like this <laughs> right. battery of shots which is kind of like in a nutshell their lives it, it's like that's this is their not, whole life yeah. and yeah. yeah 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 it was nice to see him play like just kind of a regular kind of yeah, schmucky usual. husband. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I, yeah. I thought he was great. Unfortunately, not a hateful schmucky guy because he's, right. he's done no. a fair amount of that. And I can't. That's remember. what I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It was wonderful. So, what what else is is coming out? What else I wonder is coming out? Uh, I think the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is perhaps another Netflix, another Netflix production. Oh, what can we do? What can we do? Well, just sing the praises of. <laughs> The films that they're underwriting. <laughs> All right. Well, sing away. Yeah, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I uh, I was doing my due diligence this morning, and I guess it was originally slated to be a mini series, which I didn't know. This is a point of some controversy is or it? confusion. I mean, I I can't say that I have the definite answer. I know people who have followed it, you know, for a long time and maintained that it was clearly announced as a series, and then they kind of did a I don't know, a bait and switch or something. On the other hand, for what it's worth, the, the Cone brother has maintained it was like, it was ever thus. It was like, it was this, this is the thing it was going to be. Mm -hmm. This weird thing that we did is always what it was going to be. And I don't know if it's related or not, but there's also a lot of these episodes or, or these stories they've been writing for like over 15 years. Yeah, yeah, one of them is at least maybe 15 years old. The, the Tim Blake Nelson one, I think, um, that they gave to him early 2000s 
So I don't know how that fits in or not. Yeah. So well, I won't. Yes. I won't say that the Tim Blake Nelson episode, <laughs> the eponymous Tim Blake Nelson episode, really shows fifteen years of <laughs> marination and maturation. Yeah. It's a six six episode anthology film, and as ever is the case with anthology films, we might call it an uneven mixed picture. bag. Um, and particularly for me, it comes out of the gate pretty rough. Uh, it starts in a very goony kind of broad comic mode and then settles, I think, with the third episode mm. uh, starring Liam Neeson <laughs> and uh, a young actor. Who's, Harry Melling, I think. Yeah, Harry Melling as a limbness, limbless itinerant uh, showman doing the like northwestern timber camp circuit uh it settles into something a little more melancholy and strange uh the sort of punchline of that film or the setup to the punchline uh features liam neeson flashing the most disgusting tobacco stained grin (laughs) that i think i've ever seen in pictures um yeah, a couple of good faces in that I mean, oh harry, i mean harry melling has this like skim milk countenance yeah. well know, i mean like, as ever is the case lips. yeah <laughs> like the the area in which the cohen's are kind of non-pari uh is an area which is a good area in which to excel if you're making a western which is typage like this eisensteinian casting of somebody where you're going to get the entirety of their character within about 12 frames of them being on screen. And it's such a wonderful, uh, variegated bunch of weird Western faces that have been put together, some familiar, some less so. In the last episode, which is this, it, it seems like it belongs in like, a Tygon or Amicus like British horror <laughs> anthology more than it does necessarily uh-huh. like yeah. a, a Western anthology. You've got Saul Rubinick of uh, Unforgiven oh, yeah. fame playing a, a jaunty boulevardier. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tyne Daly. Yeah. Tyne Daly, yeah, so good. <laughs> um, but I, I saw the movie only yesterday, so I must admit i'm still mulling it over a little Mm -hmm. bit i mean once one gets past the first two episodes which are cohen's in their more like cartoonish wackadoo mode it settles into something that i find very very interesting and touching and uh very involving what's the second episode again the second episode is the james franco oh right uh bank robbery gone awry hangs, right. yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah and he's actually an interesting example of the typage you're saying because it's almost like found face found face it's like they're taking a star's face that you're really familiar with but still it's kind of immediately recognizable that he's this totally callow character so that, i don't know they're 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 i, I kind of love that that they're kind of just appropriating their this. casting is yeah really yeah. yeah yeah and even i mean it's not overstuffed with big name stars no, no it's and true. even the recognizable faces are less so like i yeah. knew full well tom waits was in the movie 
Right. It took me a little while to <laughs> upload in his grizzled prospector <laughs> episode um, that, oh, that's Tom Waits. Uh, yeah. The other thing that I'm, st- uh, you know, even though I have certain feelings about individual episodes, and I think, Sheila, maybe we're in the same camp as being pretty delighted with the fourth episode, the wagon train episode. Yeah. With, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and maybe less so with others. I still haven't like pieced together how these episodes talk to one another. Like there are certain motifs or even lines that seem to be kind of callbacks to preceding episodes. Yeah. The Liam Neeson episode features a uh, chicken who performs uh, mathematics, and then the following episode, <laughs> the Grizzled Prospector episode. Uh, Waits has a tossed off line that's something like, you know, how high can a bird count? Uh, and there's, you know, little things <laughs> yeah. that seem to sure. sort of thread from one episode to the next. But in terms of like how, you know, how much of a conscious architectural form the entire mm. thing has, I'm, I'm still a bit undecided. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, it's actually funny you use the phrase talking to each other, the stories talking to each other, because uh, I did an interview with Zoe Kazan, and she actually said in the press conference for the film that, you know, she thinks of the stories talking to each other, and then she kind of elaborates on it in the interview a little. Um, and actually, I don't even want to try to summarize, because she has this kind of all worked out schema for the for, for, for how things progress from one to the next oh, and, well, yeah. and what you're expecting about the protagonist in each one uh, and then where it ends up. So yeah, the interview, uh, read the interview because <laughs> she'll say it better than, than, than I can. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it is a movie that, that, yeah, from the outside, it kind of like rebuffs you with this, with the, with the grotesque. Although again, I think Tim Blake Nelson doesn't really consider it a grotesque character for what that's worth. Uh, and yeah, a, a first episode that looks like, I don't know, you know, as if it's the Hateful Eight or yeah, something. I, I mean, I don't discount the fact that it's kind of consciously off-putting and it is colliding two very discordant kind of Western modes. It's like a 1930s yeah. singing cowboy Western, but then he <laughs> uh, ambles into a cantina that's like a 60s peck-and-paw cantina. Yeah. And... <laughs> Yeah, it leaves a weird taste in one's mouth, yeah, for sure. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you know, knowing that the movie is put together by Netflix, when you're, part of me is thinking, wow, so they just kind of felt they could do whatever. <laughs> so this is the first episode where they kind of just do whatever and no one's going to tell them no. Um, but, uh, but I, yeah, it does serve to kind of push you, push you away. And the second one does, looks, feels like more of a just straightforward entertainment. And then, but then with the third one, yeah, maybe it's sort of getting onto your skin emotionally a bit more. Well, I mean, and I, I think this is always kind of the case with the Coens, who I have a lot of time for. Um, <laughs> but there's a significant body of uh, very intelligent critics uh, for whom they're always just going to be like film school punks <laughs> who are Still. kind of deliberately taking the piss at film mm. history. I mean, I, you, certainly you can find that in Hail Caesar and Barton Fink. Yeah. And Hail Caesar has a lot of w- wonderfully funny, I think, material relating to yeah. <laughs> kind of B-Westerns, let's say. But, uh, I mean, it, that first episode really 
com- I, I I found myself <laughs> thinking while watching it, it's like shit. Does is everybody who hates the cones right? Because <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not enjoying this at all. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you you saw it on on the big screen. Sheila, did you see on the on on? I screen? did. I yeah. went to a, one of the more recent screenings after the oh, yeah. New York Film Festival. So I just kind of I just kind of went with it. I mean, it was like, yeah. oh, I'm up, I'm down, I'm this, I'm that. You know, like I was, yeah. um, I you know, emotional connection I, is not really how I respond to them. Right. You know, um, which is fine. I don't have to. It's not a requirement. But the fourth episode with Zoe Kazan and yeah. Bill Heck, who is a movie star. And I mean, it's as, as though it's Gary Cooper and, it, you know, coming to life again. And it's a type that is out of style. It's not, you know, that type of man character. It's hard to find an actor who can even do what he did in it. It's the, the most romantic that I think they've ever, like, frankly, sweetly, organically romantic i'm trying to think over their work you know like i responded to it very strongly especially to him and his awkwardness with proposing to her and his kind of sweet manly shy thing that he was doing i thought it was a really really good performance um so that one was the one that i responded to emotionally but the other ones i was you know i was interested in them i was yeah you know there's also a action set piece at the end of that fourth episode that is sort of impeccable. Uh, oh, God, yeah. yeah. For of, sure. It's set up, and then, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this yeah. really, I mean, kind of ripped off of a Frederick Remington canvas. <laughs> and um, and I think, and you get this a bit at the end of True Grit as well, uh, there's a lot of smart alacry with uh, the Coens, but I do think that they, in as much as they allow themselves a certain sentimentality, do get a little misty-eyed with regards to the sort of mythic, stoic Westerner. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Which, so I mean, if that, you have that, then you have to get some people who can do it yeah, without wink-wink right. at the audience, which then becomes a huge turnoff. Yeah. And I felt that they achieved it in that, it was corny. I mean, it was corny as hell. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? It's very courtly kind of way. He's Which talking, yeah. um, is felt appropriate. It felt yeah. like that would he. You know, there were mutual respect, but it was also yeah. like I need you, you need me. Yeah. That, you know, that's good enough to fall in love in that situation. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that'll that'll do. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I thought that their approach to it was really entertaining in in um, kind of an old fashioned way, in yeah. a way that I enjoy. Yeah. One minor caveat, and this is hardly the only offender, but uh, let's do away with that CGI blood splat. <laughs> wait, One, wait, wait. Where's where's the splat? Throughout, we got CGI mm-hmm. splat throughout, and I want uh, give me give me give me the old analog squib any day <laughs> of the week. Really takes me out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just yeah. A minor a minor point. <laughs> okay. It's been bugging me for a while. <laughs> so those angel wings in the in the first episode, there was. <laughs> I mean, it's gonna take me a while to come around to that. Yeah, I, I miss the old angel wings. All right. Well, I, we I, unless there's a any any other movie we, we want to run through. We've done. There's through. another Netflix production, on The Other Side <laughs> of the Wind, which is just a masterpiece. A little little bobble. Yeah. <laughs> 
A little bauble. They've dusted off. Um, yeah, but perhaps that's better saved for another yes, day. Yes, let's save. Let's save that. It's 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 a. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. We'll there. serve no wine before it's time. <laughs> Indeed, and and with that, uh, we bid you adieu. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.